For those that have been around for the last couple of years, you probably remember two years ago in March and beyond that, uh, just asking you to pray for our grandson, Lewis. And if my daughter wouldn't mind standing and, and letting us all see Lewis, um, that's our miracle baby right there. <laughs> yeah. Amen. We, we did not know that he would make it beyond a day or, for that matter, the first few months. And, and, and then, of course, thought he might be on... Uh, IV feeding or intravenous feeding of whatever they call it, TPN, um, for maybe up to 10 years or so. And, and I don't know, a little over six months later, he was off and going. So uh, he's been doing well and the Lord has blessed him. So if, if you have your Bibles with you, if you would open them to John chapter 19. John <clears throat> chapter 19. I'm going to read the last two verses of John 19. And then we'll continue the story into chapter 20. Um, I realize uh, that we had this account largely read or entirely read uh, earlier when the kids were doing their play. But for the sake of context to the sermon, I'll, be, I'll read it again. John 19, uh, beginning in verse 41. And the title of the message is The Resurrection and Real Hope. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The one Jesus loved and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, since we have been raised with Christ... Help us set our hearts on things above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Help us to have heavenly thinking, not earthly thinking, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Oliver Berkman, an author in the self-help business guru genre, who regularly actually mocks self-help books, which is why I like him. Uh, In his book, 4,000 Weeks, he wrote this. He said, The average human lifespan is absurdly, terrifyingly, insultingly short. Certainly, you might get lucky, or, or, or excuse me, assuming that you live to be 80, you'll have had about 4,000 weeks. It's a little under that, actually, um, or a little over that for 80, and, and 70 would be well under that. The average, um, uh, or, certainly, you might get lucky, make it to 90, and you'll have had 4,700 weeks. Expressing the matter in such startling terms makes it easy to see why philosophers from ancient Greece to the present day have taken the brevity of life to be the defining problem of human existence. We've been granted the mental capacities to make almost infinitely ambitious plans, yet practically no time at all to put them into action. Imagine for a moment that you lived for a thousand years or 52,000 weeks. You could reinvent yourself at least 25 times. If your dreams of being a rock star crash, which they likely will, becoming a lawyer would be another option. If you don't like lawyering, go to medical school. If you don't like your wife and kids, start over. Try your hand at professional sports. So what if you fail? You can do anything else you want. Then there's the benefit of making us all more concerned about the future of the planet since we are likely going to have to live in it. But you can't. You don't have that many weeks. You have maybe one or two shots at shaping your life into something worth living. And that assumes you aren't born a slave into an abusive relationship with debilitating disease or into such dire poverty that you have to look up to see the bottom. In view of how limited our time is, one might think that our chief concern should be time management. In a certain sense, that may be true, but it often fails for two reasons. First, it doesn't actually give you more time. It just changes how you use the time you have. And secondly, more often than not, time management tends to enslave us to our task. Some uh, would delude us into thinking that if we could just focus enough that we can have empty inboxes or complete to-do lists. In the end, we become machines focused on how to crank through as many work tasks as possible and ultimately making every minute count so that at some point in the future you can reap the benefit. It's a utilitarian view of time and it fails to see time, our life on earth, as a gift from God. And we have no promise that the supposed future where we get to enjoy our time will ever come. Well, time isn't our only problem, really not even our chief problem. What if you could live forever in this sin-ridden, broken world? 
We would not only increase our opportunities to enjoy life, we'd increase our opportunities to suffer from disease, abuse, violence, war, and numerous other injustices. And on top of all that, we'd become more skilled at deceit and corruption and invent more ways of doing evil. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb addresses the two key problems that humanity faces because not only does it offer the promise of resurrection to all who join themselves to Christ by faith, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation, the remaking of everything in heaven and on earth. I'm going to talk about the importance of hope. Lewis Smedes offered that there's nothing, repeat, nothing, he says, more critical for any, of, any one of us, young or old or anywhere in between, than the vitality of our hope. Yet our lives are driven by an underlying anxiety rooted in the despair of our inability to change the problem of death and the problem of fallenness, the fallenness of this world while we live. How does the resurrection of Jesus offer us hope? How does it offer us hope in the ultimate sense, dealing with death? And how does it offer us hope in the present life, dealing with the fallenness of this world? A real hope, a fully robust hope, must speak to both of those issues to make a real difference. And the resurrection does that. So we're going to explore the hope which the resurrection of Jesus offers under three headings. First, the resurrection of the new, and the new creation. Second, no resurrection, no hope. And thirdly, the resurrection and real hope. So under that first heading, the resurrection and the new creation. John the Apostle is working on our imaginations. As moderns, we often read the Gospels as pure history, as if there's such a thing as pure history. We try to line up the four Gospels and get all the events lined up, and we, we usually run into trouble because that's not what they are intending to be. They're theological treatises. And the craft of the one who's writing that Gospel is that of a, it's a literary art form. He's crafting a piece of art to communicate theological truth. Yes, he's using facts of history. But he's doing it in a way to stir one's imagination to see a reality beyond anything we can see with our own eyes. With verbal brushstrokes like a world-class artist, John paints in themes to hint Jesus' resurrection as being the beginning of the new creation. His gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 1, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. And finally, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In the beginning. Well, that reminds us of the first three words in English of our Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John informs us that it was the Word, Jesus himself, who became flesh, who created everything. But we also know from Genesis in chapter 2, that when the, in the beginning, when the Lord created the world, he planted a garden in the east, in Eden. 
Now, what do you call somebody who plants a garden? A gardener. (laughs) So when John takes his brush and fills in the detail that the tomb is in a garden, he's the only one who tells us that. Why would he tell us that? Well, because it was important to him that we know that it was in a garden. And then after the resurrection, that Mary mistook Jesus for a gardener. The image of that first garden, which was made, is being roused in our imaginations. We wonder, is it going to be garden again? Are Are we back in Eden? The resurrection of Jesus is a do over. Not just for Jesus, but for the whole world. The world as it was meant to be ended with humanity's rebellion against God in Genesis 3. We've longed for it ever since, but we haven't been able to achieve it. We wonder, is it coming? Are we ever going to reach it? But when they rebelled against God, they were driven from the garden to the arid places of the earth. There was jealousy and murder. There was power-mongering and violence. There was enslavement, poverty, and abuse. Our hearts longingly ask, will it ever be garden again? John's resurrected stand-in gardener, resurrected Jesus, is making a new garden. The resurrection and the new creation. If you were to ask most Christians today, I suspect, I've done no surveys by the way, I just make these things up as I go along, but, but they are based on anecdotal experience, okay? But if you were to ask most Christians what the new creation is and when it begins, well, most of them would probably just look at you funny. But of those who had a response, some sort of coherent idea of what the new creation is, would likely uh, say that it begins sometime at the end of the world when Jesus returns. But nothing could be further from the truth. Elsewhere, John, referring to Christ's resurrection, calls him the firstborn from the dead. Paul connects resurrection language to creation language in Colossians. He calls Jesus the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, similar to John's language, from the dead. Right after calling him the firstborn of all creation. The point is that when Jesus came out of the tomb, the new creation began in him. He was a whole nother sort of being. Human, yes, but not subject to death, decay, corruption, anything. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, all who are baptized into Christ join with Him are new creations, for we not only died with Him in baptism, but we are raised with Him to new life. In biblical language, the resurrection of Jesus is the start of the new creation, and therefore, the start of hope. Now, get under my second heading, the resurrection and no hope. Before I can speak about the hope which the resurrection offers, I need to speak briefly about three substitute hopes we humans often seek. Like mirage after mirage as we trek across the Saharan sands of life, these hopes keep Getting us off track, we chase after them only to find nothing. I'll speak in generalities. More could be said. Maybe more should be said. Don't have time for that this morning, but something must be said. The first of these false hopes is hope in the progress of human development. 
probably the biggest one we face today. It's the most common one that we're presented with in our world around us. Hope in the progress of human development. That hope, in in many ways, is a parody of the Christian hope of the ever-growing kingdom of God. But its source is always in the goodness of humanity and the assumed goodness uh, that all scientific ability is good and will be used for good. Well, before the 20th century was half over, this was proved absurd. For the very purveyors of the myth of progress were the perpetrators of some of history's greatest evils. Politicians still rely on this myth to persuade us that they're going to solve the problems we face. The problem is that the vision of the future does nothing to solve evil, whether intellectually or in practice. Hitler promised to usher in a millennium of sorts. Marx yearned for the betterment of mankind, and his system has produced at least as much evil as any. The eugenics movement yearned for a better world, which came about through the death of the undesirables. There is no human system that is exempt from this dilemma we call sin. And it offers no hope for the oppressed, abused, and victims of violence of the past and the present. It offers no justice. What about the children sold into human trafficking or enslaved in factories or adults framed for crimes they didn't commit, rotting in jail and sometimes executed? Even if we fix everything in the future, what about that? Maybe you're here today and you think that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just too hard to believe in. No doubt it takes faith, but maybe less faith than to believe um, in the myth of human progress being the real hope for the world. Another less noticed but wildly influential false hope is the belief that material existence itself is the ultimate evil. And our hope is in shedding our material existence. Now, there's no small dose of that in Eastern religion, but it's also not uncommon in the church today. Writing off uh, creation is inconsequential. People don't really seem to care a whole lot, even in the church, about the earth that God made and our responsibility to care for it. This is quite the opposite of the myth of progress. To be sure, it views creation itself as the problem. Our our goal, according to this, is to shed our material existence and unshackle ourselves from time altogether. And, of course, this leads to a kind of escapism which offers no hope to created existence. The only hope it offers is to get out. And and it leads to either an aesthetic life of no pleasure or a no-holds-barred pursuit of pleasure, every pleasure one can find, because nothing fleshly matters at all. Or it leads to just an attitude of who cares. And then thirdly, there's the so-called hope of when you're dead, you're dead, so it doesn't matter. Live for the moment because that's all you have. The best hope you have is to enjoy the moment. It's becoming increasingly popular today in our postmodern world. For those who can never buy into the myth of human progress but still embrace material existence... There's the myth of living for the moment, that that will somehow bring meaning. And certainly it can offer temporary pleasure, but pleasures and meaning are not the same thing. The need for purpose or meaning will eventually sap the pleasure out of pleasurable activities such that they're just activities. If ever there were a system to make one a slave to the moment, this is it. 
If the moment is all you have, it's all you've been guaranteed, then you're beholden to it. What, you do, what do you do with it? Do you, do you enjoy it for what it is? Or do you have to use it to make a better future? And maybe you've noticed the cruel joke that of your 4,000 weeks of life, or possibly much less, that the older you get, the faster each week flies by. While at the same time, your capacity for enjoying them decreases. Sorry. <laughs> if you hadn't figured that out yet, I'm sorry I had to break it to you. <laughs> joy in the moment is a gift from God. But if joy in the moment is all one has, it certainly offers no hope. Well, we've seen the connection between the resurrection and the new creation. We've briefly explored alternatives to the resurrection, which offer no real hope. So let's now turn to the third and final point or theme, which is the resurrection and real hope. And I want to read a text uh, from Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, for those of you that love surfing or the ocean, and you're thinking, who would want to go to a heaven where there is no sea? You're reading it way too much like a modern thinker. Okay? In the ancient world where this was written, to read that there was no sea, the sea represented chaos. It represented death. It represented everything that subverts life, that turns our lives into something horrible. So to say that there is no sea is not to speak about bodies of water. It's to say that in the new creation, all that destroys life is gone. And you'll see that in a moment as we keep reading. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's Eden again. It's where it all started, God dwelling with man. It's garden again. And then listen to this. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. See, no more see. <laughs> no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There are three specific ways that the resurrection brings real hope, true hope. First, the resurrection means that you have way more than 4,000 weeks. I mean, like, way more. In fact, you have more than 52,000 weeks. Well, maybe not this side of the tomb, but on the other side of the resurrection. Those who believe in Jesus, because of his resurrection, have already passed from death to life, John says elsewhere in his gospel. And, and here's the thing. We're not just going to be raised after we've died. We're going to be raised not back into this broken, fallen world, but into the new creation wholly and completely. Amen. Therefore, we are free to live our lives, not to get everything we can out of the moment, or to accomplish everything on our bucket list, but to serve the king in his world-renewing mission, returning every space we touch into an Eden, a place for God and man to dwell together. A place of goodness. Secondly, the resurrection brings true hope. 
Yes, because it means you have more than 4,000 weeks. But also, it is the beginning of the new creation for us. I alluded to 2 Corinthians 5.17 earlier, but I want to read it again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Listen, when we are joined with Christ in his death and burial, we are not left in the tomb buried, but we are raised to life in him into the new creation. We symbolize this in baptism, where a person is brought down, a dead person, as it were, being buried in the water, and then raised up to resurrection, brand new life. Because we are now living on the other side of that line. We're in the new creation for Christ has been raised and it has begun. So if anyone is in Christ, new creation. New creation. We're not waiting for the new creation to come one day. It began with Jesus. All who trust in Him become new creations and are called to live doing His will on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, living under the new creation way of doing things and not the old. As we do, the kingdom of God comes here and now in measure and will one day come in fullness. And by the way, since our sin has already been judged in Christ, we died with Him. We received His death as the punishment we deserve. It's dealt with. Our sin has been dealt with in Christ. We've already entered into new creation. Not fully, but certainly in part. Walking in resurrection life is what Paul describes in Romans 6, 4, when he says, We, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Walking in this new life is walking in the ways of love, walking in peace, joy, kindness, gentleness, patience, faithfulness, and so forth. John contrasts these two ways to live in his epistle. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life. We've passed from death to life. In other words, we've gone from the old creation that is doomed to death. The day you eat, you shall die. To the new creation, which is only life. We've already passed from one to the other, he says. We know this because we love each other. See, love is the way we live in the new creation. Anyone who does not love, well, they remain in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life or read the life of the age to come, the life of what we might call new creation, dwelling or residing in him. If we have the life of the age to come, we love one another. That's new creation. And as we walk in this new way of life, the new creation is coming down out of heaven from God. In another place, Paul describes our hope as Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes possible that Jesus the perfect image of God, can now live out His resurrection life in each of us. We are being restored to the full image of God in Christ. This is the hope of glory both now and in the fullness of the age to come. The new creation which began with the resurrection of Jesus is not just about a better place one day, but offers transforming life here and now. And then thirdly, the resurrection offers true hope. 
Because the resurrection means that evil has been addressed and overcome. At the cross, Jesus suffered the worst of human injustice. He endured an unjust trial. He was declared by all innocent. Even Pilate. He's done nothing deserving of death. But what a mock trial. What a grave injustice. He was violently executed by mob insistence and was the victim of both religious and governmental abuse of power. Did they win? It may have looked so on Good Friday, but boy, it did not look so on Easter Sunday. Amen? Amen. See, he took everything that evil had to offer. He absorbed it all. And when he was raised from the dead, he made it and declared it all powerless to do anything anymore. Thanks be to God. The new creation is going to be free from that evil. There will be no more sea. Amen and amen. If the worst they can do is kill you and that doesn't work, they are powerless. This means that the life that Christ offers is actually new. It's not just a longer version of this corrupt life that we have to deal with now. I mean, like, hey, I'm only 60 and I've come up with enough ways to do evil, okay? I can't imagine 600. I don't want to even think about what that would be because the older you are, the more you figure out. You could have and you would have. I remember when I was first married, I was probably 19 years old and I started working uh, at a, a general nutrition center. We'd moved, and I needed a part-time job. We planted a church, and after, I don't know, a month or so, I, I said to my, my boss, I, I said, hey, you realize, like, I could rob the store blind and there would be no paper trail to follow me? What? Well, let me show you. And I just showed her in the, in the cash register how you could program it to take money out and nobody would ever see where it went. But that just took me a month of working there. No, I didn't do it. <laughs> One guy did, and he went to jail. <laughs> well, they finally fixed the, the computer problem in, the, in the, the register, of course. But think of the stuff we would come up with. Christ offers us the ability to transform the human heart and experience through Him. This new life is just not some sort of reprise of the same old violent story. The new creation is not just an extension of life in the same broken, fallen system. And, 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 and we have this promise. Before entering fully into the new creation, at the end of time, when we fully get to transition into that new creation... All the injustices suffered throughout human history are addressed. John writes, right before that description we read earlier of the new creation, he says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now, in our culture where we live in a peaceful society, a lot of times people, like, really don't get a God of judgment. But you know, nobody who suffers oppression, nobody who lives in dire poverty, nobody who lives in that part of the world where their life is miserable has any concerns about judgment. In fact, they're hoping it will come and quick because it means their freedom. And that's the world the Bible was written into. If we want to understand judgment, we have to understand it from that vantage point. Oh, the oppressors never like judgment, of course, because it means that they get to have to stop their ways and they're going to pay the price. Injustices, whether done by us or to us, are addressed. Wrongs are made right. And the truth is, the longer we live our lives, we realize that we fall on both sides of that injustice is done by us and to us. We, we, we experience both of those. We've all been sinned against and we've all sinned against others. It's just the reality of who we are and we need Christ's help and we need to be remade into new creations in Him. Well, just a couple of thoughts in closing. Eugene Peterson borrows this phrase, practice resurrection from Wendell Berry. And since those are two of my favorite writers, why not just use this quote where he takes from the other? He says this, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that, tri- that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. I'm going to read that description again. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, Life that trumps death. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. And about this practice of resurrection, he writes this. When we practice resurrection, we continually enter into what is more than we are. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus, alive and present, who knows where we are going better than we do, which is always from glory unto glory. Do you have hope in the resurrection that Jesus provides? The life which is given, the hope which it gives us. If not, I encourage you to consider Christ and His claim to be the Lord or the King of your life. He, and not any other system of power, is your Savior. He, and not any other system of power, is your Savior. As for the rest of us, who claim that Christ is our King, are you practicing resurrection? Are we living in the life of the new creation rather than the old fallen way of living? The fallen way of living is being dead even while we live. The resurrection way of living means living even if we are dying. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to understand, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear the glorious truths 
of the resurrection of Jesus and what they mean for transformed lives here and now because they offer us, well, way more than 4,000 weeks. And they offer us a real hope in a transformed world, a new created world, which has begun in Jesus Christ and is to begin in your people, the bride of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.